text of this sermon is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. And I'll begin reading at verse 12 and read through verses 23. So from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. It was Abraham Lincoln who was quoted as saying, and most people are as happy as they choose to be. Frank Minereth and Paul Meyer, two psychiatrists in Dallas who, who work as partners, picked up on that statement um, and wrote a book and gave it the title, Happiness is a Choice. And in the foreword of his book, Paul Meyer has this to say about Lincoln's statement, quote, I couldn't agree with him more. Lincoln ought to know what he's talking about, for he certainly had enough anguish in life. The death of his fiancée, the lost elections, the Civil War, and many other major disappointments in life. At one time, he got to a point where he was so depressed that he thought about suicide. But Lincoln decided that he would overcome depression and he chose to be happy and he found joy and peace of mind in the latter days of his life before he fell victim to an assassin's bullet. Most of us are as happy as we choose to be. 
And so I heard about a woman who went to her physician with a catalog of complaints, a retinue of all kinds of illness. And after he examined her thoroughly, he determined he was convinced that it was her negative attitude about life that caused her to feel the way she did. And so he took her into the back room of his office and showed her a shelf of empty bottles and said, each of those bottles is empty. They're all basically the same size and the same shape, but they have nothing in them. They're all empty. And I could take one of those bottles, he said, and fill it with enough poison to kill a human being. Or I could take the bottle and fill it with enough medication to ease a throbbing headache or bring down a fever or fight disease in some part of the body. But the important thing is that I have the choice. The choice is mine. And then he looked into her eyes and said, every day that God gives us is basically like one of those empty bottles. You and I can fill it with love and life-affirming thoughts, or we can fill it with poisonous, destructive thoughts. The choice is ours. Most of us are as happy as we choose to be. And so as we begin this brand new year, we can take these each day of these 365 and we can be a blessing or we can be a curse to those around us. The choice is ours. We can be happy or we can be filled with despair and frustration. The choice is ours. Oh, I know we'd like to blame our circumstances and we'd like to say, you know, if things were different in our lives, uh, we'd be happy. But that's really not true, for circumstances can be overcome. The list of successful people who have overcome circumstances is awesome. I'm told that Einstein could not say a word until he was four years of age and never learned to read until after his seventh birthday. And one of his teachers said of Beethoven, as a composer, this man is helpless. And when Thomas Edison was just a little boy, his, one of his teachers said, this boy is so stupid, he'll never learn anything. F.W. Woolworth of Woolworth's department stores got a job working in minimum wage when he was 21 years of age in a department store. But the man who owned the store asked him not to wait on any customers because he said, quote, he doesn't have enough sense. Walt Disney was once fired by a newspaper because he had no good ideas. Caruso was told by his teacher, you don't have a voice, you can't sing at all. And Louisa May Alcott was told by an editor, you don't have it within you to write anything that, has of, that is of popular appeal. And the list goes on and on. And even though I know that we're to a great degree products of our environment and at the mercy of our heredity, most of us are happy if we choose to be. And if we're sad, it's because we have thus chosen. But what if you choose to be happy? What if you choose to make this a happy new year? What are the ingredients of a happy new year? Someone said there are basically three. You have to have something to do, someone to love, 
and something to look forward to. Now I know that's pretty simplistic and it leaves out Jesus Christ. There's no mention of Him. And after all, He's the source of all joy. But assuming this morning that you're a Christian and everything is equal, that's a pretty good formula. You need something to do. A happy life is a life that's filled with meaningful activity. Even in Eden, Adam and Eve were told to tend the garden. Sometimes I think that we are tempted to believe that happiness is the absence of responsibility. If I just didn't have all these pressures, if I, didn't just, if I just didn't have all this responsibility, I'd be happy. No, the human creature is so designed that meaningful activity is essential to his happiness. So if you sit back and do nothing, and you have the physical ability to do something, you're susceptible to depression and despair. Dr. Edward Rose now, who was once associated with Mayo Clinic, tells about an experience in his childhood that caused him to enter the field of medicine. When he was just a boy, Edward Rose now's older brother became acutely ill. And so young Edward sweated it out with his family until the doctor came and did his diagnosis. And he said, my eyes were riveted on my parents and I saw how anxious and worried and concerned they were. And he said, I was watching them as the doctor did his diagnosis. And then the doctor kind of smiled after a while and said, relax, your boy is going to be all right. And he said, I was profoundly impressed by the change that came over my parents at the announcement. And writing about it years later, he said, I decided right then and there to be a doctor so I could bring light into someone's face. Now doctors are not the only ones who are able to do that. Dedicated teachers, committed plumbers, I mean, after 12 days of sub-freezing weather, certainly a dedicated plumber would bring joy into the face of most of us. For any activity can be a meaningful activity if it's entered in the right spirit, if it's seen as something God has laid upon our life, if it's done as unto the Lord. The text describes the early days of the ministry of Jesus. They were days that were filled with purposeful and sometimes exhausting activity. Listen to verse 23 again. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of diseases and sickness among the people. Now you may have had the image of Jesus as a kind of an intellectual recluse sitting somewhere cloistered in his ivory palace waiting for the people to come to him. And if you've had that image of Jesus, this verse ought to explode it, for he was a dynamic, hard-working man who understood who he was and what he was about and what God had called him to do. And so did the Apostle Paul. 
And so he wrote to the Corinthian church, the Lord did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not in eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He knew his limitations and he knew what God had called him to do. The problem with so many of us is, I think, that we really do not have an overall sense of purpose and direction. Thomas Carlyle compares human beings to ships and he says 75% of us are like ships without rudders, just at the mercy of the shifting winds and tides, drifting aimlessly, he said. And while we fondly hope that one day we'll just kind of drift into some prosperous harbor and win one of these Reader's Digest bonanzas, most of us, he said, will wind up on the rocks or adrift or aground. And some of us are like the rich Texan who rushed up to the ticket counter of the airline and said, give me a ticket. And the ticket manager fumbling with his ticket said, where to? And he said, it doesn't matter. I've got business all over. Now it's great to have business all over, but I'm telling you, the happy people are the people who centered in on those meaningful activities, those important things. This one thing I do, said the apostle. Now will you do that? Will you find some meaningful activity, something God has laid upon your life, something you must do or it will never get done and do it? I watched as Bill Moyers interviewed Carl Menninger, this 90-year-old father of American psychology. And I listened as he talked to him about the changes he had seen in our thought processes and patterns. Then I heard Bill Moyers ask Carl Menninger, what is it that concerns you most and gives you the most concern, anxiety? Why, he answered quickly, Our desire, he said, to self-destruct. Who had tendencies to suicide, who would call me and say, Dr. Menninger, don't let me kill myself. But he said, on the national and global scope, I don't hear that anymore. And he said, what we need are people who will cry out to the world, there's no reason to kill yourself. There is hope. Do you want some meaningful activity? Jesus said, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. And we need someone to love. You read these verses and you stamp across them in bold letters the four-letter word, love. And you understand that as Jesus called his disciples, he did not just call them in order that he might continue through them his plan, his game plan for the world's game. That was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. For these disciples, you see, were not robots or computer chips that Jesus was programming to carry on after he was gone, his plans and dreams. They were human beings, they were people, they had feelings, and so did Jesus. And a major part of the purpose of Jesus calling these disciples was that he needed someone around him to love. 
He needed the fellowship and wanted the companionship of these men as he sojourned on this earth. He needed someone to love. As a matter of fact, everyone was a someone for Jesus to bestow his love upon. Isn't that amazing? Dr. A.D. Garden in his book, A Touch of Wonder, tells about when he was a boy scout He said he had a scout leader who was an ardent woodsman and naturalist. He said he would take us out on these nature hikes and he'd never say a word. He'd just take us through the woods and then he'd get us back to the the meeting hall and ask us to describe what we had observed, the plants and the birds and the trees and the wildlife. And he said invariably it was about a quarter of what he had observed and it never was enough to satisfy him. And he'd just get all worked up, he said. Why, he'd say, creation's all around you, as he would circle his hand in all-inclusive circles. Creation's all around you, but you're keeping it out. Don't be a buttoned-up person. Stop wearing your raincoat in the shower. Now, those are graphic words, stop wearing your raincoat in the shower. And we understand that what he was talking about was about being open and sensitive to the wonders of creation. But you have known and I have known people who live that kind of a buttoned up existence, refusing to be open to love or to love someone. We're just kind of frozen in the middle. We want to be loved and we want to love, but we fear it. Someone has a book entitled Loneliness is the Fear of Love and makes a statement in that book. The fear of love is the root cause of every action or attitude that separates us from one another. And I know a lot of lonely people who are just frozen here, afraid to love and afraid to allow themselves to be loved. And they're lonely. This is what C.S. Lewis says about it. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of getting it intact, you, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will, not become, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. He said, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. You need someone to love. Now you might say, well, all my family and all my friends have died and I have no one to love or love me. Well, my heart goes out to you if that's the case. But I must say to you, that you must not allow your capacity to love to die with your family and your friends. Mother Teresa left her family and she went to serve God in Calcutta, India. And in that great and tragic city, she found millions of people who needed to be loved. 
And one night she received this urgent request to come to this little hovel where a mother and her children were starving to death. And so she gathered up just a little bag of rice that was all she had. And her assistant, and she went to this little hovel in the back streets of that city. She went in to find a mother and her children emaciated and starving. And she put her rice bag down on the floor and turned to minister to the children. When she turned around, the mother was gone and so was the rice. After a while, the mother returned. The rice bag had shrunk to half its original size. When Mother Teresa asked her, where have you been and what did you do? She just looked at Mother Teresa quietly and said, they are hungry too. And they are a, hen, a, a, a Muslim family living next door that was starving to death also. And this Hindu woman had not lost her capacity to love. Some of us have. And so Huxley once complained of all the worn, smudged, dog-eared words. Love is the grubbiest, smelliest, slimiest of all. It's bald from a million pulpits and lasciviously crooned from a hundred million public address uh, systems. It is an outrage, he said, to dis decent feeling and good taste. It's an obscenity we hesitate to pronounce. And yet, he added, and yet we must pronounce it, for after all, love is the last word. It is the last word. It was the last word of Jesus. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. You must, because he loved you, find someone upon whom to bestow your love or else life is wearing your raincoat in a shower, pointless and futile and unfulfilling and in the end, deadly. Now what does it mean to love somebody? Well, in a simplistic way, I think it means identification. Now, we don't like that, so we wear our radio earphones while we jog and eat in the cafeterias. And I heard of an experience that happened this Christmas, or some Christmas, about the lady shopping in the shopping center, and she was tired and exhausted, and so she stopped, bought her a little package of cookies to take a little rest, and she found the only table available in one of these crowded food areas in the mall and she sat down and started sipping her coffee. A black man came, took the seat on the other side of the table. She ignored him. She reached out in the center of the table, opened the package of cookies and began to eat one. She noticed to her chagrin that the black man reached in and got him a cookie, started eating it too. She was infuriated. She drew the cookies closer and put up her newspaper as a kind of a wall. He just smiled, reached over the paper, got himself another cookie. How could he do that? She put down the paper and glared at him. He just kind of smiled, broke the cookie in half and offered her one. And he, she just got up in a huff and started to the car. She was already exhausted and, 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 and frustrated from the shopping experience, started to the car, reached in her purse to get her keys, found to her amazement her package of cookies and realized she had been eating his. Huh. That'll make you Christmas. 
And so most of us, we draw our, get our little cookies and we hold them up close and we get our little time and we say, this is my time. And we get our little love and we say, this is my love. And we get our little money and we put it up here. We say, this is my money. And then we read that Jesus, though he was in the farm of God, not thought it not something to grasp, but emptied himself and became a man and, and involved himself and became identified. And that's what he taught that revolutionary way, his friends. He said, why, you can't set a broken limb from across the street. Mercy must span the chasm between man's sin and God's righteousness. Mercy must become identified with the disease if the patient's healed. And that's the clue of his whole ministry. See him in the baptism of John, perfectly identifying with the troubles of people, making their problems his, their shame his. He was numbered among the transgressors. And it's no symbolism that he was crucified between two thieves, for that's where he lived his life, in involvement and identification. That's what it means to love somebody. Now, point three of Sermon 1, 1984. You need something to look forward to. And Jesus said, come after me and I will make you. Don't fail to catch that. Underline it. Come after me and I will make you. Have you ever noticed, had you ever thought about it, that he called James and John and, and, and they were fishing with their father Zebedee and Zebedee didn't go? Was it because James and John were called and they followed Jesus and Zebedee didn't go, it wasn't, didn't go because he wasn't called? Well, I think it was more than that. I think Zebedee, the father, wasn't called because Jesus knew he wouldn't follow. For there was something about Jesus that appealed to the adventuresome, those who were looking for something to tie their life unto. He wasn't called because Jesus knew that he would not follow. Young people followed Jesus while conservatives sat and shook their heads. But think what they missed. Think what Zebedee missed. He missed it when Jesus calmed the waves. He wasn't there when he healed the sick, raised the dead, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. Think what he missed. To follow Jesus is to be caught up in the most exciting thing of life. You want something to look forward to? You begin to follow Jesus. For no one had ever been like him. No one had ever said anything like he, had ever, like he said. Nobody ever did what he did. Don't you imagine that these disciples went to bed at night thinking, I wonder what he's going to do tomorrow. I wonder what he's going to say that we've never heard before. And they had that pulsating excitement of something to look forward to. It has not changed. I think some of us have, have kind of given up. We've kind of lost confidence. Confidence in life, confidence in ourselves, confidence in God. We're a lot like the overweight woman who sat down, you know, as I said, woman who sat down with her, uh, 
because I don't want to get, you know, indict myself, who sat down with her, not, with her slim friends at the restaurant. Her slim friends were drinking tea without sugar. And before her was this seven dip, hot fudge, chocolate, marshmallow cream, ground nut, cherry calorie monster right in front of her. And just before digging in, she said, I've tried crash diets. I've tried, I've tried aerobics. I've tried isometrics. I've tried counting calories. I've tried jogging. And now I'm trying for the heavyweight championship of the world. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the fellow who's who tried his best to lose weight and his doctor was trying to help him. And finally the doctor gave up and said, why don't you stop trying to lose weight and start trying to be jolly? And behind both of those messages is this. It's no use. You might as well give up. It's hopeless. You're a failure and you always will be. And that's the pattern that some of us have slipped into. What's the use? It'll never be any different. 1984 won't be any different than 83. Might be worse. There's no change possible. There's no newness available. Everything's just the same. Vanity of vanities. And I think it's because some of us have struck out so often we're afraid to even step to the plate. Now you probably know that Babe Ruth was the home run king of baseball. You may not know that he holds the strikeout record that will probably never be broken. Just because you strike out a couple of times doesn't mean you're a failure. What are you investing your life in today? Now listen to me, don't get too restless. For the person who invests his life in the kingdom of God always has something to look forward to. Jesus invested himself in the will of God and he always had something to look forward to. Now you may not be able to look forward to riches and you may not be able to look forward to success as we count success and measure it. But let me tell you something. You give your life without question and reservation to God in every day of this year. And I tell you what, every day of 1984 will be a new, a new day, a day of excitement, something to look for, forward to. What's gonna, God going to do today? And so Alfred Nobel one morning got up and read the newspaper. Alfred Nobel was the invented dynamite, TNT. His brother, Ludwig, died and a careless reporter reported Ludwig's death under Alfred's name, Alfred Nobel. And he got up and he read the newspaper and discovered his own obituary under the title, Alfred Nobel, Merchant of Death Dies. And it stunned him. 
Would he go down in, in life as the merchant of death? That didn't express his concern for people, his generosity, his hope for his fellow man, but that's how people saw him and it revolutionized his, his life, his thinking. And he invented the Nobel Peace Prize to invest his life in the good of mankind. Now what do you have to look forward to? I mean, if you opened up the newspaper and you read your obituary for today, I mean, what would it say? If you're not investing your life in the things of God, there's not just a whole lot to look forward to, my friend. For the scripture says that in the judgment Everything else is like wood, hay, and stubble and will be consumed. That's not a whole lot to anticipate. And to remind you of the story I told these children, in your hands is the answer. It is as thou will it. For most of us, or as happy as we choose to be. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that now we will choose life and not death. We will choose God and not man's way. We will choose heaven and not hell. We will choose victory and not defeat, joy and not despair, Christ and not Satan. Through his name I pray, amen. Now our invitations this morning are like this. The first invitation, these are simultaneous of course. You come on any of them right away to come and choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When Jesus died at Calvary, He purchased for us a place in heaven which He offers to us as a free gift. It's called eternal life. It's just yours for the choosing, yours for the taking. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you've never been saved, maybe you're like someone I talked to this week who had joined the church, who had been a member of a church, but had never really been saved. You've never trusted Christ. Your sins never been forgiven. You've never been born again. I want you to come this morning on the very first word, God's invitation, is for you to come choosing life, choosing Christ, choosing eternal salvation. The second invitation is for those of us who need a place of new beginning, a time of new beginning. All of the past, let's put aside and let's begin a brand new day, a new start. I choose to walk with Christ. I choose to serve Him. I want one of those responsibilities in the church, meaningful responsibilities. I will choose to give my life for this next, these next days to Christ. Or perhaps you need to come this morning to say, I. I feel God leading me to choose this church to place my life here in service. Choice is yours. It is as thou will it. I'm praying that your will 
will be God's will. While we stand and while we sing, you come.